Listener Production. We would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast was recorded and pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Having children can be one of life's most exciting milestones, bringing both elation and maybe just a little bit of trepidation to parents the moment that they're born. I want to introduce you to parents, Sarah and James. My name is Sarah Tarasenko. Hi, I'm um, James Tarasenko. And I'm from Berkeley Vale and have a beautiful little 18-month-old boy called Archie. And how did you two meet? Um, we actually met at a 16th... Christmas party. Yeah, Christmas party. So we've been together <laughs> a fair while. Yeah. Married three years. Yeah. Yeah. Three years. Um, wow. Yeah, sort of sweet 16th birthday party. <laughs> Sarah and James probably know better than most just how delicate a newborn's life is, with Archie being born prematurely. He ended up having a severe um, growth restriction and then I became uh, severely unwell with preeclampsia and HELP syndrome. So then he was born um, via emergency C-section um, at 26 weeks, four days, and 509 grams. Wow, 509 grams. What's that? This, what's that like? Is that like a tub of butter? Or yeah, yeah, yeah smaller than <laughs> smaller like a than a butter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, smaller than a coke. Yeah, it's extremely tiny. So his chances, his chances were not good. He was whisked away straight away to the NICU, and I didn't see him. I went with him straight away and took him to where he was set up for, yeah, a month at the Royal North Shore. So how did that feel? You've just given birth to this beautiful little baby boy and your husband's gone with Archie to the NICU. Um, it was horrific. Yeah. Yeah. One minute, like, everything was okay. We were home excited we were going to have our first baby and then it all just happened so fast. We had to make the decision, the decision whether they would revive him or not in the first place, which was traumatic um, in itself. And I'm just laying there, no baby, mm. you were gone. Yeah. <laughs> James didn't want to leave me, but I sort of made you, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty hard decision. Yeah. But- because I knew how unwell Sarah was as well as Archie, so. That night, actually, I got I was well enough and they wheeled me up um, in my bed and I was able to touch him for the first time through the little little holes in the, you know, the crib. And, yeah, I just remember he was so tiny, the size of James's hands, and his, his body was so pink and sort of see-through, wasn't it? Yeah. And all these tubes and tubes and wires everywhere. One of those wires was for a central line, or what's called a central venous catheter, one of the many different types of catheters that are used to administer life-saving medication and nutrition. But for paediatric patients specifically, inserting these lines can come with their own specific challenges. Clinicians are often going in blind having to estimate exactly where the catheter has been placed. With adult equipment, they've 
actually had to modify to fit bodies as small as Archie's was. After hearing their story, I'm sure you can imagine how this impacts parents like Sarah and James. And for little patients like Archie, who have already experienced so much trauma in such a short period of time. This is an issue that Navi Medical Technologies is determined to solve with specialised navigation equipment for neonatal and paediatric patients, giving clinicians, parents and patients peace of mind for the first time ever. Hi, I'm Zoe Calster-Hakewell and welcome to Beyond the Medicine Cabinet. When he was in the NICU, he was just so sick for such a long time and it, was, it wasn't even day by day, it was sort of hour by hour or minute by minute with Archie. Archie spent 210 days in the NICU, so that's seven whole months. He underwent multiple surgeries as he suffered from lung disease and septic shock from a twisted bowel at just 700 grams. So tell me about your experience with central lines. So when he was first born, he had like the umbi line through his umbilical cord access point. And then at about two mm. weeks old, he got his first pick line, mm. which he was only about just over 500 grams then. So when he was like 1.8 yeah. kilos, he got his first central line, but we just know how precious they are and it was the only access point for his food and medication and it was potentially keeping him alive other than his breathing machines as well. Central lines, umbi lines, pick lines, CBCs. But what does it all mean? Stephanie Pitts, a vascular access nurse in Florida, explains. So a CBC is a central venous catheter. And if you think of CBCs like, a, like cars are a category of vehicles. So you've got all these cars and... Um, I think in the U.S. and in Australia, we have similar categories of cars, but we've got Ford, you know, you have Mercedes, BMW. So let's let's take it back to CVCs. So CVC is the category. And then within that category, you have multiple different types of, of lines. So for example, an umbilical line or a UVC is a central catheter, but it's placed through the umbilicus where a PIC line it stands for peripherally inserted central catheter. And that it's exactly what it means. It's peripherally inserted. So it goes into the arms or the legs, and sometimes they even use the scalp. And so how delicate would you say a newborn's health is? Infants and neonates are not small adults. There are distinct key physiologic differences between babies and adults. Mm. On you and I, you know, our veins might be one centimeter, but in a neonate that could be just millimeters in size. So they're they're much more difficult when it comes to vascular access procedures because of their vessel size um, and complexity. When they were sort of doing it, they were like, try and go into another room, just how, in, how invasive it was for the baby, how delicate it was and how many times they have to try do it before they can actually get it in. And they'd try their hardest to like salvage a line, even if it's blocking, because they yeah. just know how like precious and hard it is to get in yeah. to these tiny little bodies. 
all of our veins actually, you know, they lead the blood flow heads back towards the heart. And that's where we want the catheter to go. So if you can imagine this pick line is is like on a highway, right? And it's it's taking the highway and it's going back to the hub, um, which is the heart. And that's the direction that we want the catheter to go. So the intention of these catheters is to terminate right outside of the right atrium of the heart, which is the first chamber in which the blood flow enters the heart itself. And the reason we want catheters in that very specific location is if you can imagine, you've got all this blood flow getting to the heart and it's where there's the greatest amount of flow. So if you're in, if you're infusing a medication, it's getting really good dilution and then it's going right into the heart um, to get pumped and then pushed out through the rest of the body. So that doorstep of the heart is really the precise location that we like all central venous catheters to terminate or to dwell. Under the current standard of care, doctors actually estimate the length and um, insert the catheter into a vein, but they don't know where the tip of the catheter is going during the insertion procedure. So then they'll actually have to call for an x-ray machine to come over and they'll shoot an x-ray and about half the time, the catheter is in the wrong spot. And that means often that the procedure needs to be redone, which is, um, you know, it's difficult for the patient. It's difficult for the family. To be honest, it's difficult for a lot of the doctors and nurses who have to do that procedure all over again. That was Alex Newton. He's the CEO of Navi Medical Technologies, and they're developing tech that can give real-time feedback on the location of a catheter tip. The, the compounding challenge in this space is that even if you get the placement of the catheter correct initially, you know, if it's placed within a safe location, um, over the course of a day or a week, the tip of that catheter can actually move to a non-central or, or an unsafe location without anybody knowing. Currently, the only way that people really um, know when the catheter is in, a, in an unsafe location is when a patient starts to deteriorate quite quickly. You mentioned precision. Why is it so important to have the catheter in a precise location? So it's it's really critically important. Um, if the catheter is, let's say, too deep, that it could mean that it's actually in the heart. And if you can envision the heart itself, the inside walls of the heart are not like smooth. It's called trabeculae. And in adult patients, so if like if you and I were to get a pick line, if a catheter were to be in our heart, it would it would be it would it would be fine. However, when when babies, they're so tiny that if that catheter gets into the heart, it could actually get into the walls and into the grooves of that trabeculae. And then instead of infusing medication into the blood flow, you're now actually infusing it into the wall of the heart. That could be dangerous. Another challenge and the reason it's so important is let's say I put a catheter in the arm and the catheter is too short. Let's say the baby coughs. The catheter could actually flip, so it could be it could flip up and point up towards the head. Oh my gosh! When we think about umbilical lines, they can also go in places we don't want them, like in the liver. So it's really important that all central venous catheters really terminate, and that we tend to call it the sweet spot. What we're building is a medical device called an ECG tip location system that essentially listens to the electrical activity of the heart through the catheter. Um, and by analysing the, the signals that we get out of the catheter, um, the, the ECG signals, we're actually able to provide 
um, real-time positioning data back to the, the doctors and nurses so we can tell them when the catheter's in an unsafe location or whether it's still uh, positioned in a safe location. So this will help make the insertion procedures really quick and um, easy for the doctors and nurses. But ultimately, what, what we're trying to do is improve patient safety and, and reduce complications that are associated with uh, non-central catheter tips. That ECG tip location technology is called the NeoNav. The incorrect placement of central venous catheters, which, like Alex said, happens almost half of the time, was something that Dr. Christiane Theta was all too familiar with in her work as a neonatologist. She's also the chief medical officer at NAVI. The technique we use is to, to measure an ECG signal that comes from the inside of the body because these catheters go fairly close to the heart and depending on where the tip is in relation to the heart, the ECG signal that we can capture through the catheter changes a little bit. And the way we obtain that ECG signal is actually just to the saline solution that's in the catheter. So we don't have to use different equipment. We don't have to put like a cable into the baby. We're actually using the saline solution that we always have in the catheters to have that electrical signal um, obtained and be kind of transmitted to the, to the NeoNav device. You know, people often talk about skin um, being a little bit like tissue paper at that at that kind of age. Um, it's very easy to damage the skin accidentally, and so we 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 couldn't have anything, it's, you know, directly from our device that's touching the skin. So, what what that means is that as far as possible, we're trying to leverage the pieces of equipment that are already attached to the patient's body. Yes, yeah, so you're piggybacking your. Neonav onto another device that they already have to have on them at that time. Exactly right, yep. Sometimes the catheters, once they're in the right spot, they still actually move a little bit. So we call that a, a migration event. You know, short of doing x-rays, a lot of x-rays, which would be a good idea, lots of echocardiogram or ultrasounds to see where the catheter is. We also, with a Neonav, offer a method to, to check on that migration because fairly quickly easily without disturbing the baby much, we can have repeat recordings every day to then see if one of these migration events has occurred. So this way we can contribute to safety for the patients to make sure the catheters stay in a safe location. So if I was a medical practitioner using the NeoNav, what would I practically see in front of me? Yeah, so that's a, a very so you will see the ECG as it's being transmitted through the little catheter that you are introducing into the baby. We were developing a software as well that does the interpretation of the ECG. So rather than the practitioner having to go through a long process of the interpretation of these what we call intravascular ECGs, we're actually having a software perform the analysis and the practitioner can just uh, put the catheter in and ask the device to, to give an analysis and then the device will say, well, you're not in far enough yet. You need to go in a little bit further or you need to pull back a little bit. So we're trying to use the ECG signal, but in a user-friendly way that the practitioner doesn't have to go through a lengthy process of training, but gets a pretty much an answer when, he, when you hit a button or a continuous answer to say the catheter is in a certain location. Mm-hmm. 
So the NeoNav looks like any standard piece of medical equipment. It composes of a computer tablet where the ECG signals are displayed, but it also has something called an ECG acquisition unit, which decodes the ECG signals picked up by electrodes placed on the patient. It also has a thing called an inline remote controller, which lets clinical staff control the console in the sterile field, and a catheter connector that connects to the catheter and picks up and transfers the electrical signal for processing. Gillian Fu, a neonatal fellow in Melbourne, uses this technology, which she refers to as an adapter. Essentially, it's a very easy technology to use. When these uh, pressure volume and these flow waves come into this algorithm, it spits out a trace that looks pretty much like a ECG trace. It spits out these flow waves on the laptop that you've got, the screen you've got in front of you, and it tells you if there's a red bit that's too high, that means you're in too far and it's too close to the heart. If the, there's no red bit and there's no wave at all, you know that you're not deep enough and you need to push that catheter in deeper. Yes, it takes practice to recognise the patterns, um, but it's something that's very easy to use and definitely can be used by a clinician at the bedside. Clinical trials are currently underway at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, which Gillian has high hopes for. If you think about a, a procedure that can take about 40 minutes all up, waiting around for imaging, waiting around for someone to ensure it's in the right place, that can blow out to more than an hour. In the meantime, you've got a baby who's under sterile drapes, just like you'd imagine someone having uh, surgery. You know, you're covered in drapes. It's all sterile. Um, you have a clinician waiting around the bedside for a radiographer to take a picture. When you have an adapter that you can just plonk on to the end of the catheter as you're inserting it, read out a uh, pattern of, of um, uh, a trace, essentially, on the monitor. And you're like, yep, fine. That's where it is. Happy for the catheter to stay where it is. And that's it. Rather than waiting around for imaging to happen, rather than waiting around for someone to come in and do a scan for you to make sure it's in the right spot. And then if it's not in the right spot, there you are trying to fiddle around or put in another one. So we're currently looking at that at the women's. We're recruiting babies to this, what we call, there's a study happening now to make sure that when we put those adapters there and it's come out with an algorithm and a, and a, a pattern that you can look at and we do an x-ray because that's our standard of care at the moment, how many of those that have been picked up by adapt, the adapter correlates with where it sits on the x-ray in hope that in future all we need to do is put the adapter on and that's it. Navitech isn't just helping patients, they are also helping clinicians. I certainly care for every patient as if it's my own and you always want to get it right and you want to get it right the first time. Babies come typically with parents and they of course want you to do the absolute best as well. So, you know, oftentimes when you're working with babies, you have a small window of time. So if if they did receive any medication to help them be still during the procedure, um, it's typically a small window of time that you have in which to work. So you're under the gun, you've got small vessels. We allow the parents to be present. Um, we'll put, you know, masks and things on them so that they can stay. But so you have the pressure of making sure you get it right um, as well. So yes, they, it can be very stressful. Like the pressure that these doctors are under to just even insert them in these tiny bodies. It would just be incredible to help them 
to help the baby and not go through so much invasive um, stress. stress and trauma just to get a line put in that's going to save their life, it would be a game changer really for all these um Everyone involved. Yeah, like, everyone involved. The doctors you know, and the babies, yeah. the parents. The um, nurses having to maintain the lines. Yeah. What are the challenges about working on medical devices in the paediatric domain compared to the adult domain in Australia? It's, you know, it, it's always a challenge to develop a medical device, particularly as a first-time founding team based in Australia. But when your focus is on the paediatric market, there's a, there's a perception that, that clinical trials and the regulatory barriers are higher in, in the pediatric domain. But probably the biggest challenge that we face from a commercial perspective is the perception that pediatric markets are just too small to be worthwhile developing products for. So, um, you know, it, it all comes back to the return on investment that an investor might seek. You know, if, if there's an investor that's looking to invest a million dollars, why would they invested in a pediatric medical device that's going after a smaller market compared to uh, an adult medical device that's going after a much bigger market. The, the, the good thing about working in the pediatric medical device space is that there's a lot of collaboration between um, children's hospitals. Clinicians are very open to talking to us about the challenges that they face because, you know, to be honest, I think sometimes a lot of the doctors and nurses feel left out. You know, they they see sort of devices getting developed for larger patients, adults, but, you know, particularly those um, doctors and nurses working in the, in the neonatal space, sometimes the products aren't available and they actually have to use adult-sized products and sort of trim them down or, you know, cut them and, and sort of jerry-rig solutions to work in smaller patients. It's interesting because you mentioned risk profile for this particular population, but then you're also talking about how in a practical world, nursing staff and doctors have to cut adult-sized equipment down so that they can use it. Can you reconcile this for me? I really want to understand this. And I, I don't think I can reconcile it. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. So, you know, as, as a society, we tend to put a very high price on children's health. You know, we spend billions of dollars building children's hospitals and training specialist um, nursing and medical staff to look after patients, uh, to look after children. But then when it comes time to having the right products to use um, to treat these patients, there's, there's, a, there's a gap. You know, the, the data from the FDA shows that only around 5% of medical devices that are approved in the US market actually have an indication for use in newborn patients. So, um, you know, when, when you talk to specialists in the, the neonatal or paediatric um, domain, it, it's a common frustration for them to say, I just can't find, you know, the, the right sized products sometimes. Some of the other equipment, yeah, is just adjusted from adult size to a neonate, which is wild as like one in 10 babies in the world are born prematurely and how they're still doing that now with like those statistics is, yeah, insane that it, it's sort of still to the days where they're just adjusting equipment to help neonates when it's this big there's so many babies born each year that that need the equipment and technology it's quite eye-opening 
I hadn't planned to work in the neonatal intensive care unit until I did my first rotation there and just saw the, you know, those tiny little babies. And it just immediately attracted me um, to to kind of assist them and support them in the families during this very stressful time when a baby is ill or, or born very preterm. And it became a little personal because I actually then had preterm babies myself. So I have twin sons who were born at 31 weeks gestation. And one of them, uh, my son Michael, was actually quite ill as a newborn. So that was, you know, a difficult time to then actually experience my my workplace, the neonatal intensive care unit, as actually a parent. And Yeah, that must have been really hard, being a doctor and knowing what you know and then going through that personal experience yourself as well. Yeah, so it really makes, you know, makes you understand of, of the, the stress and the worries of, of what parents really go through and how much they rely on us as practitioners to support their babies and help their babies, but also support them during this very difficult time for the whole family. To me, it was interesting that in medical care, there seemed to be very good mechanisms for research and, and production of new evidence. But when it comes to the technological advancements, at least in my field, it's been a little bit of a a surprise to me, really, that, you know, why haven't been able to do this this earlier? Because I've had certain ideas for a long time. So it was really lucky for me to meet my co-founders through the Biodesign Innovation course. Yep, you heard that right. A Biodesign and Innovation course is where the Navi medical technologies journey began. So Alex, Christian, and the team came together by chance and maybe just a little bit of organisation. So I was really fortunate in 2016 to put my hand up to say that I would be really interested to participate in the first uh, biodesign innovation subject that was run through this university. And uh, that's where I got to meet my future co-founding team. There were five of us, so there were three uh, people studying our MBAs Um, Two of us were uh, uh, biomedical engineering students at the time um, and the missing kind of piece of that puzzle was the clinical innovator and that's that's where we met Christiane. So Christiane's been interested in um, clinical innovation and engineering for a long time but I think she's never really had um, a vehicle to meet the other disciplines required which is sort of the engineering and the business disciplines and so that that course was kind of the catalyst for the formation of our team. We're all very determined to to bring Navi to the market. Um, it's been a very interesting journey, really, for, for several years now. Um, and uh, I think we're quite pleased that we are progressing on the path very well. Um, but it does come with a lot of a lot of work. Um, but it's but it's good work. It's work that's for a good purpose. And it's really been exciting to to work with my co-funders to really make it happen. Yeah, one of the things I really liked about your company and your technology is I very much related to it in the sense that my cousin and my two brothers were both very sick as little babies. So my younger brother, he was in the NICU in terms of um, development, for example, of the lungs, you know, asthma associated now as an adult living with asthma, which is interesting because... I think it's it shapes the way that you come to the world shapes, you know, who you are later on. But from what I know about what my parents went through, not that I sort of experienced it, it very much is something that can change someone and it's very traumatic to be in that 
situation as a parent, I think um, they often talked about that feeling of helplessness as well. So I can imagine something like with what you're building, it's this hope. Yeah, I think I, I think that's a great point, and 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 I think it's that hope. You know, when when we were creating our team before we had really even settled on an area of medicine to investigate, one of the the things that we talked about was whatever space we worked in, we wanted to have the biggest impact that we possibly could. And then when we got the opportunity to meet Christian, one of the ways that we talked about that was imagine if we could have a, a small improvement on somebody's life on day one of their life over the course of a, you know, 80, 85 year lifespan just having a small improvement at the start could grow into a huge amount of impact into that person's life. Um, you know, compared to looking at the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's not worthwhile, but, but, um, if, if we were to have a small impact on somebody's life when they were 70 years old, um, it may not, you know, be quite as big as an impact over a lifetime as if, as if it was on day one. And so for us, that was one of the, um, areas that, that we wanted to look at was trying to have an, a, a positive influence on somebody's life as early as possible. And I think, you know, that there's kind of no better way to do that than, than by working in the neonatal intensive care unit. What would you say to people who are similarly in your position looking to sort of come into this industry and, and, and implement an innovation that's similar to what you guys have done? Yeah, I think one of the best pieces of advice that we got um, early on was to build a, a really strong network and and so from day one we've tried to include um you know doctors and nurses from all around the world i think one of the most important things to do at an early stage particularly in the pediatric um, market is to validate that the problems that 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 you're experiencing at a local level are a global problem so i think the first step for for example, medical practitioners or nurses who will have ideas that that could be developed with a, you know, with a technological solution is to just be aware that it can be done, um, and to kind of seek out opportunities of um, you know how this can be done. Now there's more and more there are accelerators, there are collaborations with universities. So just be aware that um, it, it can be done. One just has to go out and find the right team to do it. Really. To date, Navi has raised over $3 million, which has funded a number of clinical prototypes and clinical studies at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne. In June, Navi also secured $1.2 million, which will help complete the next critical phase of product development, which is music to the ears of parents like Sarah and James, who know just how important central venous catheters are. A piece of equipment that's going to help everyone um, in that situation, to get it in and to keep it in longer would just be incredible. Life-changing, really. And little Archie, who's now way bigger than a tub of butter, is proving to everyone just how strong neonates can be. What they said his quality of life was going to be compared to what he's doing now. Like, he's just learnt to roll and he's commando crawling. and um, Yeah, he's surprising a lot of people. Yeah, he uh, is. But the main thing that we just want is he's happy. He's such a happy little boy. Um, despite everything he's been through, he's just so happy and continually kicking goals and just surprising everyone, I think. 
isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Pioneers like Alex, Christian, and the team at Navi are proving just how important innovation in the neonatal space is, even if it is limited. Technology like the Neonav has the potential to give every child, no matter how they came into the world, the opportunity to thrive from day one and gives both families and clinicians the confidence of knowing our most precious gifts are looked after. Beyond the Medicine Cabinet is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Kuyong Group. Hosted by me, Zoe Callister-Hakewell, producer is Kelsey Menzies, audio by Kelly Falston, and executive producer is Todd Stevens. Listener.